and welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles, the quarantine editions. Very excited to have on the show a local Park Board District 6 candidate, Risa Houston. Risa, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, so this is, I think, makes you the most frequent guest on the show. I think this is your third time being on the show, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and we've I can't help great- it if I know what I like. <laughs> well, and it's always been fun conversations of talking about bike advocacy stuff. Um, and I know you've got a much broader portfolio uh, as a candidate for the park board, um, but I'm definitely going to pick your brain on uh, some of the bike stuff uh, that's going on with the, with the park board and some of the parks and programming and so on. So um, first of all, um, what prompted you to run for the park board? I mean, I'm a person who I grew up in the parks. I, I, I think that, you know, if our city is going to lead on climate change and equity, we have to take advantage of our parks system. Um, and I, I knew that I was the right guy for the job. And even then it took me a second to, um, you know, tell my friends and neighbors like, Hey, this is, this is a thing that I want to do. Uh, who's ready to help me for, uh, <laughs> no money and a lot of time. <laughs> and, um, I was really thrown away by like the enthusiastic response that people gave me for that. That's really exciting. And so you, you're building a campaign. What are some of the key elements to building a successful campaign for, for your district? Oh, um, you know, first off, knowing your team, knowing what you can do and what you can't do and what you don't need to do. Um, you know, when, when you yourself, um, when it's important for you to be like in contact with um, folks in your district, to be like directly talking to voters, to be directly talking to stakeholders, um, and just be in direct communication with community members, uh, and you maybe don't have to print mailers or put um, postage stamps on things or like uh maybe like spell check the website, like if those things can be done by other people that you trust, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that is so important to have a strong team. Um, and, and I think one, one other thing that we have going really well for us is uh, we have horizontal leadership structure in, in the team. So that means in, in our case, you know, with 10 team members, that means that at any given time, you know, there, there might be a task that any one of us could do and, and we still all try to come together and say like, this is, this is the task at hand. Uh, how, how do we feel about this task? Does, does the, does the, does the team, does it, does this message sit right? Does, um, does this, does this purchase feel correct? Does this, um, you know, does this messaging align with our values? Uh, and we can like move together as, as a, as a group and, and know that we're going in the right direction before, um, you know, burdening one person with a task. Mm-hmm. And I've got to believe that that empowers your team members too, to really take ownership and to just jump in and get stuff done. Absolutely. I, I am, I'm blown away by how productive we are and how happy I think we all feel with the work. That's great. That's great. And, uh, talk a little bit about the priorities that you have for your campaign and what you would like to be able to accomplish as a park board member. Yeah, of course. So as, as always, accessibility is my number one. Um, making sure that folks can physically get to our parks and feel safe in our parks. Uh, safety in the parks. Um, programming excellence. Uh, our parks are, um, are our number one child care provider in the city after the schools. Um, and, and then 
environmental sustainability and leading on climate change. One of the biggest controversies I think that's happened over the last year or so with the Minneapolis parks has been um, the challenge of people who are unsheltered using the parks as a, a place to, to stay. Um, and I'm curious to know what policy steps you'd like to see the park board take with respect to those, those folks and, and their sheltering needs. Yeah, of course. And I think one thing I wanna mention, Jason, is folks have been taking shelter in the parks for as long as you and I have, have used them. Um, and you know, this, the, this last year, I think what we saw is a series of crises happening at the same time. Um, we're in the middle of a housing crisis and a pandemic. And um, I think unhoused and unsheltered folks were much more visible to, to people, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that, that this was the first time um, or the last time for that matter that, that folks will try to take shelter in, in parkland. Um, and with, with all those things being said, I think there were a, a, a really a, a huge outpouring of, um, of support from neighbors, from parks, folks who were on staff, um, different kinds of people coming together to, to work together on um, just giving folks that were unhoused or unsheltered uh, support, uh, asking you know what they needed and centering the needs of the folks that were experiencing homelessness in the parks. And, and where does the park board fit in the effort to help them in the long term? Like obviously it's a temporary situation for most folks um, who are using the parks as a place to shelter, but how, where does the park board fit in that longer term um, effort? Well, the park board is in a unique situation because the park board staffs dozens of, of outreach staff already, which like the primary role of the outreach staff was intended to be for, for youth, you know, like a person could like reach out to, you know, a, a, a youth person or a group of a group of kids um, and like engage them in, in programming. But that group of people is actually um, really well suited to also do outreach to adults um, and and to like establish connections with folks. Um, I, I noticed that the outreach staff this summer was very adept at, at um, you know, building deep relationships with people quickly. Um, and using their resources to, to get folks access to, to things that they were asking for or needing. And, and there has been some uh, give and take with neighbors around the parks. You mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, and how does the park board in your, in your vision balance the needs of those unsheltered folks with the needs of the families who are coming to the parks for recreation and other programming? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question. I mean, I think everybody wants to be able to use parks and green space and playgrounds and all these other great amenities that we have. Um, and 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 at the same time, I think everybody understands how how tough of a situation it is to not have a place to call your home that's not you know in a in a public space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think everybody understands that. Um, I think, I think we all kind of agree, like we, we want folks to have dignified housing and access to dignified housing. Um, 
and and unfortunately that's a bigger lift than just the park board or just us neighbors can can do together um but i i do think that a little bit of a silver lining of the visibility of the like issue of unsheltered homelessness this last summer um is that more people see the problem as part of a greater systemic issue which is you know we we don't have enough housing stock in the city of minneapolis um and we don't have person-friendly systems to to support folks who need access to dignified housing um i i really think that now that people are starting to recognize that um that that there is something wrong with the system that folks are 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 starting to become ready to get to work on the solutions do you feel like that the park board has created systems or programs that are going to be effective in helping reduce that challenge or do you feel like there's some things that that you'd like to add to what's already being done yeah i think that i think that individual staff members um, took it upon themselves to, to, to put in work to start understanding um, how to navigate different support networks. Um, I think that we can do that program-wide. I, I think that we can begin giving outreach staff and other parks staff the tools that they need, the training that they need, um, and uh, uh, frankly, empowering them with the connections that they need to, to start doing more of the boots on the ground um, work to, to help connect folks as they, as they express a certain need um, mm -hmm. for say, um, if you're a person who um, requires some kind of housing support, like, like we have these resources and they're very hard to navigate. Um, and if you're, if you're a person who is already in direct contact with like an unhoused person, um, let's just give that, you know, like, let's just cut out the middleman. Let's, let's, let's give these folks who already love the parks and who already love the people in them. Um, let's give them the tools that they need to, to make those connections. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you mentioned at the uh, beginning of the conversation, accessibility as another priority for you and obviously being a cycling advocate, um, bikes have got to be close to, to your heart when you think about those issues. Um, what are some of the keys to making parks accessible in your mind? Yeah, so infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. Uh, so there are a lot of either outdated or um, crumbling pieces of our pedestrian network that connect our parks to the places that people have homes, um, the places that people are traveling from, um, places where people can get to the parks from say like a bus network uh, and, and identifying those pinch points in, in the network uh, and using an equity lens to identify which parks most need treatments like more um, ADA compliant ramps, 
more curb cuts that allow for people who are, you know, using a wheelchair or pushing a stroller to, to physically get to a park and feel safe on the way. Um, those are all things that we can do quickly and cheaply to make the park going experience a lot better for everybody. Are those, are those things that are directly under the park board's purview or are there some things where you have to partner with some other city uh, organizations to, to make that happen? Absolutely. That will require collaboration between the city of Minneapolis, uh, Hennepin County, and in some cases, the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. Resources and relationship building. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I noticed recently is that uh, some sections of the uh, River Parkway, as well as um, the lakes areas are going to be closed, at least in Mm -hmm. one direction, for uh, covid um, social distancing uh, during the, the upcoming months. Is that something that you, f- you think is going to be continually taking place? I mean, are there, are there opportunities where the parkways can be more effectively utilized for all um, transportation users? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really prefer to think of what we're doing on the parkways now as opening them for people. Hmm. Uh, you know, rather than talking about the parkways just being closed, closed to cars, yeah, that's, that's driving. A good point. Yeah, um, anybody can be on the parkways now. It's just uh, you can't be on them with a car. Uh, yeah. So if you if you want to hula hoop down a whole length of the parkway, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, with with that being said, the 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 program where um, cars weren't allowed on certain sections of the parkway last year to allow for more physical distancing between people. Um, That was immensely popular. So many people loved that program. And honestly, that is the number one thing, the number one positive that people talk about with the parks from 2020. Um, And in fact, one strange caveat is the really the only thing that was difficult about those closures was the cost, um, which is super fascinating. And I, I promise I won't bore you with like facts and figures about the Federal Highway Administration and their rules about closing things. But um, it is not it is not reasonable and realistic to own the kinds of equipment that it would take to like close off a, a whole stretch of parkway. You have to rent those things. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it was just like months and months of basically like renting little cones to close, to close the streets off. But now we're actually going to be able to put permanent gates in at some of the mm. parkways, which is going to be pennies on the dollar compared to, renting. you know, renting things yeah. for, for months on end. Um, so I, I think that that program is basically off the ground now. People, you know, people got the, got the, got bit by the bug last year and are, really gung-ho about it this year. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting too to think about, you know, expanding the facilities for active transportation users, pedestrians, cyclists, um, beyond the paths. You know, I mean, we, the, the parkways have a great network of, of paths, both pedestrian and bike paths um, that follow along the, the, the car portions of the parkways. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, do you feel like there's an opportunity for more infrastructure on those road portions of the parkways as well? I mean, are there going to be some changes to the way those those parkways are shaped over time? 
That's a great question. I think, you know, one thing that I hear a lot in speaking to folks that um, live in, you know, the Southwest uh, corner of Minneapolis is that there are, they have concerns about how fast people go on the parkways, Mm -hmm. um, even when they're driving in cars. Mm -hmm. And, and, and one thing I always tell people is like, we, we can do some very, like very easy treatments to the streets to, you know, inform people as they're driving to like go a more appropriate speed. Um, and, and, and that's just, you know, that that's just something that, you know, we can do, uh, based on how we want people to use the parkways. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure that if we start opening the parkways to people more often, or even in some cases, um, sections might be open to people permanently, uh, as, as those users change, will change this, Mm -hmm. the streetscape along with that. Sure. And shifting gears a little bit, thinking about uh, cycling as a programmatic thing, um, nearby my house at the Hiawatha, uh, Lake Hiawatha tennis courts, uh, there's sort of been a semi-permanent bike park uh, that's been installed. And uh, it's really a lot of fun. And every time I ride by there, there's a million kids uh, chasing around on that infrastructure. Are, are there some other areas in the park system that you, you think might have opportunities to do that? And is that something that's a priority? Yes, absolutely. So the, the Hiawatha bike park um, is one of two in the system right now. Mm-hmm. The Northeastern park is the other one. And for those that haven't seen this spot, it, it's, um, it's a repurposed tennis court that wasn't really getting used a lot. And so we made just these, these little features like taught lot level features. Um, maybe the tallest one is probably like five inches off of the ground, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like little, little berms, um, little waves, uh, little features that um, small people who are riding bikes can, can just kind of like cruise on and figure out how, how, to, how to ride a bike and what fun riding a bike can be. Um, and, and I think those are, those are great. I, I love hearing from community members, how they end up using those. I think one piece of feedback that we do get is, you know, the, the folks that are like the, the, the ages that like that skills park are between three and seven. Uh, and then once they hit that point of like seven or eight, they want something more, you know, they want, they want bigger features or they want to keep playing on that kind of thing. Um, but maybe they're not quite at the point where they're going to go and like ride the single track at Theo. Right. So there is a pump track in the works as well mm. um, up over North. Fun. Uh, yeah. So we just like, just keep, keep growing. I'm, I'm excited to see how that, how, yeah. what people think of that. That's fantastic. And yeah. you know, big people on fat bikes can ride on those, those bike parks too. And they're a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Fun for all ages. That's right. Um, the, uh, the, the, the strategic plan, the long-term plan for the parkway. Um, and again, that's you know, not necessarily entirely in your district. There's the, lots of it that, that goes through district five uh, as well. Um, there, it looks like there's some other bike infrastructure planned um, in, in the form of maybe even some small single track areas. What, what can you say about, about some of the other developments around cycling in the park board? I mean, really anytime you can include just a little bit more value out of a piece of park property, 
Um, I, th I think the, the board does a good job trying for that and the staff does a good job um, planning for those things. So yeah, there, there are talks of including more sections of single track um, by the Creek area and other, um, other places that are either underutilized or um, just uh, where there is interest for those things. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned safety a little while ago as being an important aspect of, of what the park board needs to be about. And obviously with its own police force, um, there are you know specific challenges that you face. And of course, with everything that's been happening in the last week with Dante Wright and the Dare Children trial being so visible, um, everybody's got policing on their, on their minds right now. Um, what are your thoughts around the role of policing in the park board and on, on park uh, property? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I want to say really quickly, um, when we say, when we say that we want justice for George Floyd, and when we say we want justice for Dante Wright, um, we don't mean that we want the people that killed those two community members to be in prison. We mean that we never want another neighbor to be killed by city staff. I wish, I wish we didn't have to say that, but um, just so we're all on the same page, um, justice right now doesn't, doesn't look like somebody being punished for yeah. hurting somebody else. Right, it's not it's retribution. Is never again. Yeah. Uh, and with, with that being said, it's so important for us right now to talk about what it means to feel safe in your own community, what it means to feel safe in public space, um, what it means to feel safe on, on you know, our, our streets. And I think that the kind of safety that we're seeking is going to take a lot of work. It's gonna take a lot of tough conversations with community members and it might mean that um, it might mean that instead of uh, getting to ask a city employee to come and end an argument for you by like escorting someone away in a squad car, it might mean that like you have to have a tough conversation with another park user. Um, say like, hey, the you know like what are, what are we doing? You know, it's like, it's 10 PM. Could you not set mm -hmm. these fireworks off They're mm -hmm. They're annoying me and my neighbors right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we're going to go away from a place of, um, you know, if you pick up the phone and you dial 911, no one will be there. Uh, but I, I think that the kind, the kind of safety that we're talking about is one where we all trust each other to be able to, you know, if, if something needs fixing, if a, if a relationship needs fixing, if a community needs healing, um, we all have to be ready to have conversations with the people that are close to us. Mm -hmm. um, and that means, you know, the people that live down the street, the people that use the parks with us, um, you know, if, if you're a person who is, you know, traveling by bike on the parkway and you, you know, need to share the path with a person 
um, using a mobility device, like, are you, are you treating that person like they're your neighbor? Um, and this is, this is a big cultural change that I, I know that we need to be fully participating in. And I am really just grateful that I am not doing this work alone. The environment is another area that is a, a pretty unique challenge to the park system in, in Minneapolis. There's so much property that belongs to the, the park system, you know, in, in the city, both land and water. And it seems like that's probably one of the biggest challenges to manage the environmental impacts from not only within those areas, but also from, from outside those areas. What, what are some of the things that you hope to be able to accomplish as a park board member um, around environmental impacts on the park property? Yeah, so I, th I think that, you know, one thing, one thing that is kind of exciting really about, um, about what the park board is and what it can do is they manage almost every tree that you see in the city. Like mm -hmm. every, every tree that's on every boulevard, um, every, like every time you look down a street and there's a complete canopy cover, um, those are all the forestry department that, mm -hmm. that makes sure that, that all of that living infrastructure is there. Um, and, and one thing that I think is, uh, you know, a, a, a fun challenge, an exciting challenge is um, we can plant about 5,000 trees a year and wow. we're in about, yeah, yeah. Wow. And we're in about a 200,000 tree deficit uh, wow. of where we need to be to meet, um, to basically to, to meet the challenges of climate change, hmm. to, to limit the worst effects of the carbon that we release into mm -hmm. the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have a pretty high benchmark to meet. Um, <sighs> so something that excites me is the idea of like, how, how, are we, how are we increasing our capacity? How are we preserving uh, growth that doesn't need to be eliminated? Like, how are we making sure that trees aren't being unnecessarily cut down? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how are we incentivizing um, other uh, areas of the park board, uh, excuse me, of, of park property that, um, you know, could be good, good spaces for um, either trees or other types of carbon capture. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's something that, that's that's very exciting because, like honestly, climate change is something you know that for for me, a thirty year old person, like that that's that's the story of my life, and and knowing that we could really be in a place in a couple of years where we are meeting the challenge is is just super super exciting to me. What are some of the challenges that you think the park board faces environmentally in the coming five to 10 years? Yeah, I think, uh, I think our water quality is a, is maintaining the quality in our waters or hopefully at some, at some level improving it, uh, is, is a challenge. Um, you know, we're, we're a city that has, most of our rainwater ends up going through, a, a, you know, a sewer system and ending up in our lakes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we have uh, a lot of very passionate people who like love doing things like litter cleanup. Um, but 
no, nobody likes knowing that our infrastructure is hurting our mm-hmm. lakes and our and our creek. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's a reality that we're having to face right now. Um, the amount of visible and invisible garbage that's ending up polluting our water system is mm-hmm. honestly getting to a crucial point. Um, we have to start doing some things that include um, building ways to protect the water, preventing runoff from making its way into the water, mm-hmm. um, and also doing things to, to buffer the, the watershed like by, by using um, native planting mm-hmm. and um, other, other strategies to limit how much ends up in the watershed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like there's some of that infrastructure. You know, I live very close to Lake Nokomis, and obviously there are a number of um, runoff areas um, that have been built over time. But I've got to believe that there are some additional ap- opportunities for that kind of natural buffering. That, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. am, I, am I off base there? Oh no, that, that's, you're 100% right. So the, the, the staff have great plans for how to include more and better natural buffers. Uh, and, and really what they need is uh, the, right, the right tools, the right resources, the right time. Sure, yeah. What are some of the other environmental priorities um, that you feel like are missing the boat? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, one thing that comes to mind is limiting lead by uh, either incentivizing folks who fish to just use alternatives to mm-hmm. lead-based products. Um, Another, another tough one is you know, like, like land use, like the Hiawatha golf course mm-hmm. is it's a, my heart breaks thinking about this because so many people love the golf course for what it is now. Um, but it has only been operational as a, you know, a, a flat green field for a couple of, you know, you know, like really a couple of decades if we're Mm -hmm. if we're if we're thinking about it that way um whereas like that that area naturally it wants it wants to be something more like marshland (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and you know we're we're using a lot of resources to keep it kind of a nice green field you know we we pump water off of like off of the turf Mm -hmm. um and pump that directly uh, into Lake Hiawatha, um, which the, the DNR is officially not going to take anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's both environmentally irresponsible and fiscally irresponsible to keep mm-hmm. that up. Yeah. Um, it is, it is costing us a lot of money and it is costing the folks who share our watershed a lot of mm-hmm. problems. It's uh it's, it's a tough challenge, you know, yeah. um, is, and it, it creates an equity challenge as well, because that course in particular has a history of being uh, the location for a lot of, uh, it is one of the few locations where um, golfers of color 
could learn to the sport, could play without worrying about being harassed in, you know, the ways that they might be in a suburban golf course or, you know, other more expensive places to play. Um, and they certainly have a concern about losing access to facilities like that. As, as you think about the environmental challenges that are there, that are real and cost a lot of money, how do you make sure that the, those folks are not disadvantaged further by changes that need to be made to the, to the course? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that um, I think is, is really great is the, the plan for the golf course as it sits now is to retain nine of the 18 holes which means that a person, um, a person could just play through nine holes twice. Mm -hmm. So you could, you could play a full round of golf at the same site that um, has been operational at, there for decades. It has this historic uh, value that, you know, folks um, like grew up playing at this site. You can still, you could still play a full game um, you just use each hole twice rather mm -hmm. than um, rather than 18 unique holes, mm -hmm. um, which I understand that there are a lot of folks who really want to retain 18 holes. Um, and there are also a lot of folks who are enthusiastic about uh, the compromise between the nine holes and uh, fiscal responsibility and mm -hmm. environmental stewardship. Uh, I, I personally think that that's, that's a great compromise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly one of those things where you're probably never going to have 100% enthusiasm from any, any group. Um, but when you're up against a, a hard wall of the DNR saying we're not going to take any more of your runoff <laughs> and stop pumping the water away, um, it, it makes for some really hard choices. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Thinking about programming a little bit, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are around, like what is what what are some of the philosophical programming concepts and ideas that are underpinning your vision for the park system? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. I I think that one thing that we have to take stock of is how important programming is for a lot of different kids especially and there there's adult programming at the parks as well mm -hmm. um but how you know if you if you talk to any person who grew up in minneapolis they have a story of the thing that they did you know they mm -hmm. they like they played soccer with a league or they mm -hmm. played little league or they mm -hmm. they did this thing um through the parks system um and that's that is every person without fail Mm -hmm. um, and I want to make sure that those programs remain accessible. I want to make sure that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the folks that, um, are like leading or teaching those things, um, stay happy and like, well compensated for what mm -hmm. they do. I know that yeah. like, I know it's becoming harder and harder to retain seasonal staff. Um, so figuring out creative ways to make sure that um, the folks who are doing the most work with our kids are, um, are also uh, able to like, you know, be paid a living wage and, mm -hmm. be, you know, be paid full time if that's appropriate for their mm -hmm. role. 
you've uh, uh, you've identified a number of you know sort of broad experiences that people have uh, in the parks. What do you think are some of the most critical initiatives in the coming year that need to be addressed or thought about or expanded on uh, programming wise? I think accessing the information about the programs that we have is right now the most challenging and the area for the most improvement. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of communities don't know how many kinds of things they can do through the parks. Um, and I think the process right now for getting folks and like getting kids involved in, in programming is a little bit more cumbersome than it probably was when you and I were kids before mm -hmm. the internet was invented. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd, I'd love to see I'd love to see some, um, you know, more outreach into communities, you know, to say like, hey, I know that you've heard that we have a baseball team, um, but did you know that like, you can come to this park and play pickup anytime between uh, five and seven on Tuesdays? Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think, I think that, that in this, in this next year, just that communicating, like this is the, pro this is the program we have available now. Um, please come. We want you. Yeah, I mean, I think having having access to those things is fantastic. But if nobody knows about them, obviously, um, they it's hard to hard to make them make sense. Uh, you know, the park board has been it sort of gained a reputation as as not a very collegial body. Uh, there's been a lot of contention in some of the meetings, and I don't. It doesn't seem from an outsider's perspective that there's a lot of um, commonality and viewpoints and, and, you know, sort of shared respect. How can you, as a, a new per, new board member, bring a bridge that divide? I mean, what would you want to do to try and bring philosophies and ideas and people together? Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, without naming names, I think you're 100% right that there has been a culture on the park board over the last decade that um, is, is honestly from, from the outside looking in, it feels very contentious. It feels, um, it feels like the members are, um, you know, fighting with each other, um, arguing with each other, uh, not working together. And um, as, as tough as it is to watch that go down just as a, like a bunch of grown adults that are <laughs> frankly sometimes fighting like kids <laughs> I, I I really think that starting from a place of recognizing that every every other person that I'll be working with on the board um, you know wants the best thing for their constituents wants to represent um, wants to represent the people that live in their district and is just doing their best work to find a compromise um, in, you know, in a budget, in a master plan, any of the things that we're discussing. And, and I think one thing that has been tough um, in, in the last couple of years is um, a lot of park board commissioners are seeking that office because they have some other next step. They see it as a mm -hmm. stepping stone. Um, and 
and they they treat the park board meetings like a practice round for whatever mm-hmm. it is that they plan on doing next. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I'm actually really excited about in the folks that are running on the ballot this year is everybody genuinely loves the parkways and the programming and the green space and these things that are the park system they want to work for. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not, um, they're not in it as, you know, checking the box mm-hmm. um, in my in my resume, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, I think just knowing that everybody is fighting the same fight again, will, mm-hmm. will solve a lot of those conflicts. Yeah. Good. Well, that's, that's encouraging. It's uh, it's always great to hear that people are really passionate about that specific thing. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the park board and the park system is such a, a gem in, in the city that it deserves that kind of respect and attention, I think. Um, if you had one specific thing, like if you know, can't wade through the politics, can't get through anything beyond one key initiative in your first year, what would you want that to be? I would like to see a program that I am calling Safe Routes to Parks implemented. So it it me it would be a a program where um, some of the budget would be allocated to immediate safety needs um, in getting to parks. Uh, And that would mean that like if a community uh, came, came to the board and said, Hey, we've been seeing a lot of, a lot of people, you know, trying to cross this street to get to this park. Um, Can we do something about making it easier to get to? Can we, you know, can we get a crosswalk put in here um, rather than having to uh, put that update in like a budget cycle of mm-hmm. however many years uh, we would have right now petty cash available for those kinds of like immediate updates mm-hmm. to, to the network. I'm hoping I, you know, I don't want to speak for, for communities, but I am hoping that in some areas that will include some some quick fixes like pedestrian level lighting mm. which um is this like hidden gem of of a safety feature where you know like you can you can put small lights close to either sidewalks or paths that make people feel a lot safer and make it a lot easier to, mm-hmm. to use sidewalks or paths especially in like the winter months where it gets dark at like 5 p.m yeah the uh the safe routes to school is a, is a, a model that I suspect is probably similar to what you have in mind, but that's a whole infrastructure change. It's a whole po- policy change concept. How do you how do you scale that to something that's a little bit more nimble, like you, what you're talking about? Good question. I think I think communities normally know how they want to um, to use dollars to get. Um, to get streets to feel better, to get um, to get the things that they use to feel better, and 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 normally, um, nor- normally, folks are able to articulate like, hey, I like my neighbors and I like it's hard for us to get to this sledding hill because mm-hmm. we have to cross this busy street, mm-hmm. or um, you know 
my, my grandma uses a wheelchair and I can't get her, um, onto the, onto this, this trail on at this park because the curb cut is missing. Um, centering community voices is the struggle there. Uh, that's, what's not being done. It's not necessarily that, um, it's not necessarily that those are huge asks. Mm-hmm. It's just that we haven't been nimble with our funding before. Mm-hmm. So, so where do we where do we tell constituents and potential supporters how to learn more about you and your candidacy? Yeah, so um, I have a website. We have um, we have uh, all all the socials. So we're at Risa R I S A four F O R Parks P A R K S dot com. And then we're at Risa for Parks on all social media. Fantastic. And yeah. what, are, what are some of the biggest areas uh, that you would like to have support and, and help from the community on? That's a great question. So right now, because caucus is going on, uh, the number one thing that um, we could use to support the campaign is if you live in District 6. So if you live south of Lake Street and west of 35W, uh, if you can sign up to caucus between now and the 30th, so 15 days, um, and uh, and be a city delegate for the caucus for Risa for Parks, that would be number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not in the district or you can't sign up to caucus for whatever reason, um, but you can tell a friend or a neighbor about about the campaign, um, that that goes a long way. Uh, campaigns are expensive. It, um, it costs money to do things like um, get people information about the campaign. Uh, the next thing that I'm looking forward to doing is getting the website translated into Spanish and Somali. Mm. Um, and, and that's going to be uh, honestly a couple hundred dollars at least per language. Mm-hmm. Um, so donating to the campaign is huge. Uh, folks can max out at $600 donations. Um, so not, not a, not a small ask, but <laughs> if you're a person who can, who can do that, um, we really appreciate that. And, uh, <laughs> one of my team members is making little dog and cat bandanas for folks that are donating. So you can That's have, great. you can have a campaign bandana Fantastic. Uh, for your fur baby, if you can help out <laughs> in donations. And, and on top of that, volunteering for the campaign right now is, is a great thing. Right now, what we're trying to do is just reach as many people as we can to talk, talk to folks about their priorities for parks and parkways and recreation and, um, and hear what they have to say. So like, if you're a person who would like to volunteer, um, please just like get after us on our website or on any of the social media accounts. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure to share those those accounts with everybody on the on the show awesome. uh, website. And uh, it's been great to have you on the show again, Risa. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Yeah, thank you so much.